Welcome to Skim This. If you're just joining us for the first time, every week we cut through the noise and give you the context on the headlines you're hearing about and break down how the news impacts you. And this week, there's been a lot. First up, we'll tell you about the new COVID-19 strains and whether the available vaccines can stand up against them. Then we'll dive into the frenzy involving GameStop, Redditors, and Wall Street. We've also got the latest on former President Trump's second impeachment trial, President Biden's repeal of the transgender military ban, and the protests heating up in Russia. Oh, and if your work from home routine is dragging you down, we've got some expert advice on how to skim your schedule. All right, let's do it. By now, you've probably heard about some new strains of COVID-19 that kind of sound like spy names or secret codes. You know, B117, B1351, and now P1? You don't need to memorize those names, but you should know that these new strains are causing governments and scientists around the world to pay attention, especially because these strains of the virus seem to be more severe. Oh, and some of them are in the U.S. Let's rewind for a second. We told you a few weeks ago that it's normal for viruses to mutate. And at the time, we didn't know much about the new strains of COVID-19 from the UK, South Africa, and Brazil. Now that we've got a slightly better understanding of these variants, let's break down what we know and still don't know about these new strains and whether existing COVID vaccines will work against them. To help, we called up a friend of the skin, Dr. Amber D'Souza. She's a professor of epidemiology at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. She says, it's normal that viruses mutate as they spread, and especially when they're spreading among millions of people all around the world. But even though mutating is part of the typical life cycle of a virus, new strains can still be more dangerous. What is troubling is that some of those variations that are emerging appear to be slightly more transmissible and possibly have slightly higher mortality, but it is still difficult to determine how much more transmissible they are. They are still within the same sphere of the type of infection that we're talking about, but they have these increases that are a little concerning. Two of the strains that seem concerning, the ones from the UK and South Africa. So far, scientists have confirmed that the strain from the UK is more contagious and suspect that's the case for the South Africa variant as well. On top of that, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson delivered some more bad news last week. We've been informed today that in addition to spreading more quickly, it also now appears that there is some evidence that the new variant, the variant that was first identified in London and the Southeast, may be associated with a higher degree of mortality. How deadly? Potentially 40% more. But scientists are saying this is still preliminary data, and they're going to continue to monitor the emerging strains for warning signs. Vaccine makers, including Pfizer and Moderna, have been watching these new strains closely. So far, both companies have said their vaccines, which are already being distributed in the U.S., should be protective against the new strains. But they may be slightly less effective at doing their jobs. The good news so far is that the amount of change in the virus is not so different, and the existing vaccines that we have do work against the variants right now. 
there's a suggestion in what we've looked at so far that the antibody response from the vaccines might be slightly lower to the new variant than it was before. Thankfully, the two vaccines already in circulation are considered to be super effective already. So a slightly lower antibody response isn't the end of the world. That antibody response to the vaccine is so strong. It's much stronger than when you have a a natural infection with this coronavirus. Okay, so that's some good news. And just to be sure, drug maker Moderna has announced that they're creating a booster shot to offer extra protection against the South Africa strain, just to be extra careful. But just because the vaccines appear to be effective against these most recent COVID strains doesn't mean they'll be effective against all future mutations. It is concerning because viruses continue to change, and as transmission is high, there's opportunities for these viruses to change even more, and it is possible they could change enough that in the future the vaccine wouldn't work against them. As for whether drug companies will need to continue making boosters to protect against future strains? It is not usual that all infections need to have a booster shot, but If it ends up that we find an effective vaccine and are not able to achieve herd immunity throughout the world before this virus mutates enough that the efficacy of the current vaccine becomes low, then we really would need a booster. And that's why researchers and industry are are looking at proactively working on that question now so that if that arises, we would be able to address it. But waiting for enough people to get vaccinated isn't the only thing public health officials and global leaders can do to stop the spread of these mutations. Here in the U.S., President Biden is trying to prevent the variants from spreading. He's banning non-U.S. citizens traveling from Brazil, Ireland, the United Kingdom, South Africa, and parts of Europe from entering the country. But Dr. D'Souza told us those travel bans might not work that well because most of those new strains are already here. Travel bans do work when infection is localized in certain places and you want to prevent it from spreading elsewhere. Right now, the variants are already here, but in terms of the benefit versus harm, restricting travel, reducing travel right now can still have some benefit. As for how to protect yourself wherever you are? Really, protection remains the same. Right now, we need to decrease the transmission of this virus. And the two ways to do that are through getting vaccinated when you know, you're know you eligible and able to get vaccinated and through the preventive measures of social distancing, masking, and hygiene. So those same things that we've heard about from epidemiologists since pretty early on in the pandemic are still the best ways to protect yourself, even against these new mutations. Before we go, we also wanted to check in on how the vaccine rollout is going now. Since taking office, President Biden has tried to hit fast forward on the number of vaccines being administered around the country and is hoping a more focused federal response will help speed things up. His plan includes setting up federal vaccination sites across the country, reimbursing states for deploying the National Guard to help with vaccines, and making vaccines available sooner in your local pharmacy. And he's also announced the purchase of more vaccines directly from drug makers. We will both increase the supply uh, in the short term by more than 15% and give our states and local partners more certainty about when the deliveries will arrive. These things haven't been implemented yet, but it's safe to say as the variants continue to spread within the U.S., 
All eyes will be on the White House and whether it can react to COVID as the disease evolves. Dr. D'Souza told us she's hopeful about the rollout process moving forward. I think there really is a lot of hope. I'm very excited by the press briefings and the concrete information about plans that are coming out of the current administration, giving us clear steps about the plans and coordinating with a nationwide strategy for distribution. And I think that's what we're looking for in the coming weeks is more and more certainty around how many doses are there now? How many doses will we be getting? Because as you have those numbers and the pipelines become clearer and better understood, states can anticipate and better schedule the expansion of, of vaccination. GameStop is not a hot company. It was founded in the 80s to sell early computer games, but has fallen on hard times. We actually downloaded their most recent financial earnings report, and it looks like they named the file Project Title Here, in all caps. The pandemic has really hurt GameStop. A lot of its stores had to close, and a lot of newer video game consoles don't even include CD drives, meaning a store that sells physical video games has an uncertain future. Wait, what? GameStop was the hottest stock on Wall Street this week? Video game retailer GameStop is set to continue their head-spinning ascent today. A wild ride on Wall Street. There's nothing normal about what you're seeing when it comes to this stock right now. Over the course of a few days this week, GameStop's share price went up more than 500%. Wait, and so did the stock of AMC Cinemas and BlackBerry? Yeah, hit me up on my BlackBerry. Oh, wait. These companies probably aren't the next Amazon. But they're all in the news this week because of something called a short squeeze, which we're going to explain in 60 seconds. When most people buy stocks, they do so in the hope the stock goes up. But some investors take a different approach and hope a company's stock price goes down. How does that work? An investor can borrow shares of a company, sell them ASAP, and then hope to buy them back for way cheaper, pocketing the profit. But the borrowed stocks always have to be returned. So if prices climb instead of falling, investors can lose out big time. Though given that GameStop and some of these other nostalgic companies have been struggling, maybe it makes sense big investors were shorting them. But when people on the website Reddit heard that, they reportedly weren't having it. So these amateur investors on Reddit bought a bunch of stock, not shorts, but actual stocks, which drove up the stock price of those companies bad news for the traditional investors, like some pretty major hedge funds who lost a lot of money and actually had to buy shares to cover their losses, sending stock prices even higher. This story has some people cheering that when everyday investors band together, they can influence a market usually dominated by the wealthy. But today, some investment companies blocked small investors from buying GameStop, even as hedge funds were allowed to keep investing. So maybe Wall Street insiders still set the rules after all. How'd we do? Want us to skim a burning question from the news on an upcoming episode? Send us an idea to audio at theskim.com. On Monday, the House sent a very important package to the Senate, an article of impeachment for former President Donald Trump. A little over two weeks ago, the House impeached Trump for incitement of insurrection after the riot on Capitol Hill, making him the first U.S. president ever to be impeached twice. That first time was back in 2019, but
but the Senate ultimately failed to convict him. And since we've received this question before, a president is considered impeached even if they aren't found guilty by the Senate. Now, the Senate is going to have another chance to vote on whether to convict Trump on this latest impeachment charge. But before we get into what's happening, let's back up for a second. Trump's not even in office anymore. Why is this happening? One reason is because Trump reportedly hinted that he's considering running for office in 2024. Dems probably want to stop him from running again, period. And that's actually something they could do constitutionally if the Senate convicts Trump in their upcoming trial. Though that will probably be tricky. To actually convict a president, two-thirds of senators would have to back the move. Meaning, Dems have to get 17 Republican senators on board. Considering they only convinced one Republican, Mitt Romney, to cross the aisle to vote to convict Trump on one of two impeachment charges last time, they'll need some serious help. One thing that might get Republican senators to sign up? Over the last few years, some of Trump's stances and tweets have caused a rift in the Republican Party. Meaning, there's a debate about whether someone more moderate should be the face of the party going forward. For some, those calls grew louder after the January 6th attack on the Capitol. But spoiler, even if some GOP senators disagree with Trump's actions, that doesn't mean they want to impeach him. Therefore, I make a point of order that this proceeding, which would try a private citizen and not a president, a vice president, or civil officer, violates the Constitution and is not in order. On Tuesday, 45 Republicans in the Senate voted to say this whole impeaching a former president thing isn't constitutional. So that potentially gives us an early preview of how they might vote once the trial starts on the week of February 8th. One more thing coming out of Washington this week. On Monday morning, President Biden repealed former President Trump's ban on transgender Americans serving in the U.S. military. Back in June 2016, a year before Trump announced his ban, the Pentagon decided that transgender people could serve openly in the U.S. military. After realizing blocking talent on the basis of outdated norms on sex, gender, and identity was a lose-lose. Trump's 2017 order reinstated the ban, which finally went into effect in 2019. And now, Biden is basically just moving the needle back to where it was pre-Trump. Which maybe doesn't sound like a big deal until you hear that according to one widely cited study, as many as 14,700 U.S. military personnel are transgender. So that's what's happening for transgender rights on a federal level. But this week, we also saw multiple state legislatures go in a different, more conservative direction. It's only the third week in January, and we've already seen at least, I think at this point, 15 states targeting trans people. That's advocate Chase Strangio. I am the deputy director for trans justice at the ACLU's LGBT and HIV project. In the first two days of this week alone, there were four state-level bills that tried to restrict rights for transgender citizens. Legislators in South Dakota tried and failed to stop people from changing their gender on their birth certificate. And in Montana... There were two bills, HB 112, which would ban trans girls from girls' athletics, and HB 113, which would ban health care for transgender minors. The second one of those, the healthcare one, ultimately failed. But these bills keep popping up. 
In North Dakota, this week the House heard another bill that targeted transgender youth participation in sports. When it comes to the sports argument, both sides bring in science to make their case. Conservative politicians and some international athletic groups say testosterone gives transgender athletes an unfair edge. But Strangio says the medical argument is still largely theoretical. And anecdotally, he doesn't think the evidence stacks up. With sports, we have this idea that there is some competitive advantage that trans women and girls have over non-trans women and girls. We're talking about an incredibly small percentage of the population, an even smaller percentage of which participates in sports, and many of whom are just bad at sports like anyone else. The thing is, Strangio says, those arguments about narrower topics involving transgender student-athletes quickly turn into bigger ones with more profound consequences. Like when the Montana House debated healthcare for transgender kids this week. We are here to protect minor children from what are lifelong physical and psychological impacts. Changing a person's external sexual characteristics can never solve a mental health or psychological problem. And he says most of those arguments are rooted in feeling, not science. You have pediatric psychiatrists talking about how it's critical to minimize the the suicidality among trans young people. And then you have a dentist in South Montana deciding that actually she knows best. Strangio says a lot of these recent bills are part of a conservative backlash to a Supreme Court decision back in June 2020, which ruled that the Civil Rights Act protects LGBTQ employees from discrimination based on sex. And he says, while these bills are currently at the state level, it's possible that they'll make their way to the Supreme Court, which Strangio says means that for most of us, it's important to watch what happens with these state bills, even if we live elsewhere. There's a long history of policing women's bodies in sports, particularly the bodies of black and brown women. Every time we cede to the state the ability to decide who we are and to regulate our womanhood, that hurts all women and girls. Last weekend, tens of thousands of people in Russia took to the streets to protest President Vladimir Putin and to show their support for a man named Alexei Navalny. A little background. Putin has been on the scene as Russia's president since the 20th century. Yeah, December 31st, 1999, when this was the number one song in the U.S. Putin did take a little breather to serve as prime minister, but he's back to being president and recently had Russia's term limit rules changed so he can stick around until 2036. Great for him, but an increasing number of people in Russia have had enough, including opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Navalny has tried unsuccessfully to break into Russian politics for years, but with the government blocking him at almost every step, he's turned his efforts toward exposing corruption an issue that Russia experts say kinda defines Putin's time in office. Navalny had led protests against corruption and alleged voter fraud, including last year, only to end up poisoned. The voice of Russia's opposition silenced and on life support after drinking a cup of tea his ally suspect was poisoned. A German government spokesman says toxicology tests on blood samples show the chemical used is from the Novichok group of nerve agents. 
Navalny barely survived his poisoning, and after recovering for five months in Germany, he decided to return to Russia this month. When he landed in Moscow on January 17th, he was arrested again and charged with violating the terms of his parole while he was recovering in Germany. But even from behind bars, Navalny is still turning up the heat on Putin. Last week, his anti-corruption group released a two-hour documentary alleging that a billion-dollar palace near the Black Sea secretly belonged to Putin and had been built with the help of a suspicious slush fund. That video was viewed by millions, and days later, thousands of people took to the streets in over 100 cities to demand Navalny's release from prison. These were the largest protests in Russia in years. Certainly something does feel a little bit different, and I think part of it is that, you know, the regime really has nothing but repressions left. That's Anna Borchevskaya, a senior fellow at the Washington Institute on Near East Policy and a Russia expert. She says defiant protesters and an increasingly popular opposition leader pose a unique challenge to Putin's government. What to do about Navalny? The Kremlin is kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place because if they kill him or at least attempt to kill him again, um, it might result in an even bigger backlash. But if they don't find a way to silence him, it's going to keep more and more protesters coming. Those are some pretty grim black and white options. But Borchevskaya says when a corrupt government is being attacked for its corruption, they're kind of stuck. The problem is, do you reform the system? Well, the problem is the system itself is corruption. This Kremlin will fight. It, it's an existential fight. And this situation makes it difficult to predict any kind of immediate outcome other than more, more repressions. Which brings us to whether there's anything the U.S. might be able to do to support protesters or make life a little more difficult for Putin. Presidents Biden and Putin had their phone call this week, and while a White House statement said Biden mentioned Navalny's poisoning, that was it. Bolchevskaya says she's not holding her breath about any big U.S. response to what's going on in the streets of Moscow and in cities all over Russia, at least for now. The question is, what tools is the United States really going to use at this stage beyond sanctions and beyond condemnation? Because We've become over-reliant on sanctions. The sanctions have caused pain, but they haven't fundamentally changed the Kremlin behavior. And the question really is, what are we gonna do beyond rhetoric and sanctions to really change behavior? And unfortunately, that, that leaves more questions than answers. If you think climate change is too intimidating or scary or depressing to talk about, you might find solace in the Hot Take podcast. Hosted by Mary Anaise Hengler and Amy Westervelt, Hot Take is about the climate story, all the ways we're talking and not talking about it, and how that conversation influences everything from politics to your favorite Netflix series. Their conversations with journalists and thinkers shift effortlessly from climate anxiety to F-bombs. This is a show where people process real emotions and have an honest conversation about how climate change intersects with race, class, gender, and literally everything. And about who's really to blame, complete with air horns. Hot Take is for you. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.
It's almost been a year since a lot of us started working from home. And as the pandemic continues, the cracks are definitely starting to show as our disrupted routines impact both our productivity at work and our family lives. So for our last segment as part of the How to Skim Your Life 2021 New Year's Challenge, we called up an expert to help explain how we can skim our schedules when our office address is the same as our home address. Hi, my name is Kristen Shockley. I'm an associate professor of industrial and organizational psychology at the University of Georgia. Dr. Shockley's research focuses on work-life balance issues and their impact on women's careers. Right when the pandemic started, Dr. Shockley and her team actually received a grant to study work-from-home transitions. So pretty great timing. A couple things from our study are that we found Zoom fatigue is a real thing. About 70% of people reported feeling at least some level of fatigue associated with video meetings. Another big theme for the people who had kids was just the challenge. Work family is one thing when you can have childcare, but all of a sudden we're in this new situation. Yeah, what a lot of us are doing is really, really hard. The whole idea of work-life balance isn't just harder when you're working from home, but when quarantine forces you to also stay at home. Raise your hand if your dining table is also your desk. So what can we do to take our schedule into our own hands and find a better balance? One thing is setting up transitions. So if you think about when you used to go into the office, you probably had some routine where like you wake up, you you know shower, get your coffee, you know, get in the car, the subway, or however you commute. This is also called the fake commute. It's good to try to have something that kind of emulates that. Some people say taking a walk around the block is one thing that they do. Um, a lot of people advocate for still getting dressed. You know, don't give into the temptation to wear your pajamas and pretend like you're still fully getting ready for work like you would otherwise. So instead of looking like I could do a yoga session at any time during the day, I can maybe put on some jeans, wherever those are. Okay, next up is your actual at the office time. In terms of like structuring your day, obviously that's gonna depend a lot on the nature of your job. And so there I think that it's really organizing for each day what you wanna accomplish, kind of thinking at the beginning of the day, what do I need to do today? Let me lay it out and let me think about when I'm gonna do that. If just looking at your schedule of Zoom meetings makes you tired, Dr. Shockley recommends embracing a camera off approach. I just did an experiment that was pretty cool where we, we had people for two weeks, they either kept their camera all off all the time or on all the time, and then they switched conditions. And we did find more fatigue for people with the camera on. The more fatigued you were actually, the less engaged you were in the meeting. So we, I think we have this idea that camera on all the time is better for engagement. So I think it's good to take a step back and say, what which type of meetings do have to be on? And don't make it so people feel always the pressure to have to have the video on, unless it's you know really necessary in the given situation. I think that goes a long way. And not all fatigue is equal. We found that the fatigue effect was stronger for women than men. We, we hypothesize us because women generally have higher standards for appearance and are judged to different standards generally than men for the same behaviors. So I think there's this extra feeling like you have to be on and being kind of preoccupied with how you look. So it's even more draining for women and people who are, who are newcomers to the organization. Then there's also the impact of caring for your family at home. If you can, have a conversation with your partner about sharing the load and setting boundaries to prevent burnout. With the setting boundaries with your family, ideally you have a separate workspace. That's what the research shows with the door. Um, if you can't have that, you should have some other kind of signal that tells your family, you know, I'm working now. 
only interrupt in an emergency or here's what you need to do when you have to interrupt. So you have a clear pattern so people just aren't you know, running in and out. And remember, this isn't a one-way street. Organizations should keep in mind how they can better support employees. Just have some trust in your employees. And then it's nice if managers can kind of check in once in a while. The people in our study, at least, and I should say they were across different industries and jobs, seem to really just want to feel like, okay, there's still like that kind of emotional connection with my manager and that my company cares about me. So when it comes to your schedule, don't forget that structuring your environment and setting boundaries will help you not only be more productive, but happier at home. I think a big piece is for women though right now, it's, you know, you're not in it alone <laughs> and we're gonna get through it, but I think that we need to keep pushing for, to have more support from organizations and not just continually be the, the ones that pick up the slack here. I think we have to band together and really make the case for why support for families is important. Um, and I, it's gonna have to have long-term effects. So we have to figure out a way to reverse it. This is the last week of our How to Skim Your Life 2021 challenge. Thanks for sticking with us. But of course, living your smartest life doesn't end here. For more tools and resources to tackle whatever the new year throws your way, check out theskim.com. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by Alex Carr and Luke Vargas, with additional help from Peter Bonaventure and Kira Long. Our head of audio is Graylin Brashear, and I'm your host, Justine Davey. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, for more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com. 